Thank you for joining for this episode of the Techspective podcast. Uh, my guest this time is Ahmed Masood. Ahmed, if you could uh, introduce yourself and give a little bit of background um, on yourself, your company, what you're doing. Uh, well, first of all, thank you for having me, um, and Tony. And uh, sure. Um, so my background is that I um, uh, supposed to be a chemical engineer. That's what my undergrad was, but I am about three or four courses shy of it. I got sucked into computer science and um, maths research um, in uh, the uni, um, which was back in, I guess, 91. I've been a programmer uh, since 1988 when I kind of stumbled into it uh, through various circumstances. Uh, my heritage is Pakistani. I moved to Canada when I was 15 in 87. And uh, I've basically been running uh, tech companies uh, that I've started at various stages in my life, some more successful than others, uh, as as uh, life has it. Uh, right now, Safe AI is my uh, sixth startup, and it came out of a conversation with a uh, a, a friend of mine uh, who lost his law firm in uh, the beginning of 2017 to ransomware. So I'd been building uh, cybersecurity products, I guess, in earnest since 2001. Um, ended up making this little piece of uh, software that was used to protect the manuscripts of Harry Potter in uh, 2002, 2003. That was a very interesting and fortunate start to my previous company, Trustifar, uh, which ended up being very focused in defense sector in terms of creating cybersecurity offerings around defense sector. Uh, but uh, that wound up in 2015 because of various circumstances. Um, so when this friend of mine called me and said, hey, um, we got hit by ransomware twice, and then uh, hacked four other times in a period, so six total attacks in a period of four months. And they're completely wiped out. Like they're a uh, 60, 70 year old law firm, just gone. Um, that started uh, me on this thought of, okay, wh what is it that we are missing in terms of our defensive capability? And that's what started Safe AI. Okay. Well, so uh, previously, my, uh, my 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 former day job was with uh, was with Cyber Reason, and you know a lot of our focus at Cyber Reason was on was on ransomware. And I know you know so I mean so I, I I'm very familiar with things like you know you you talk about the you know law firm of seventy years. There's also you know Liberty College was you know yes. 100, 157 years I believe it was. Um, and and shut down largely as a result of ransomware taking their systems offline. Um, I mean, there were other factors that involving, you know, COVID and enrollment was down and, and things like that. But, um, uh, you know, but that that obviously is a huge issue. And, you know, we did at, at Cyber Reason, we had done a, a, a survey last year, uh, summer of 21, um, where we found that 80% of the organizations that paid a ransom ended up getting hit a second time. 
Yes, and, because, and, and then this year we did the follow-up survey. So right before I left, right before I left Cyber Reason, we did the follow-up study where we found that not only is it still eighty percent got hit again, but most of them, I want to say it was like two thirds, were hit again by the same threat group within one month. Yeah, so basically, basically it's like you've paid the ransom, and now they're like, all right, well, we're going to go ahead and hit you again before you can even address the issue that 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 caused the problem in the first place. That is precisely what happened to this law firm. They got hit twice by the same group within a period of about three weeks. They they paid the ransom. They got their data back. Uh, I think they paid like 800K or something like that to get their data back. And they got hit again. Then they paid again. Like it was that bad because, you know, um, so yes, that that happens consistently, and that I mean anecdotally that happens. But now that it's been uh, confirmed through research, that's that's a very interesting and really scary data point. But we know that from other criminal activities outside, you know, people tend to hit the same groups. Yeah, I mean, if you haven't seen it, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm not I'm not with that reason anymore. But I, I recommend looking at the, at the report um, uh, because. You know, there's other data points in there as well, like something like 50 or 55 percent of the people who pay the ransom and get the decryption key don't actually get all of their data back. So even no. when you pay the ransom, there's only a 50-50 chance you're going to get your stuff back. Yeah, that number, uh, there was um, there was another survey and apparently that number in that survey uh, was higher. It was closer to 84 percent or something like that, that because people who are putting these uh, uh, ransomware together, they're not really worried about quality of code. Right. <laughs> it's like, like it will get you things. Flaws and corruption that happens in the encryption and decryption process. Exactly. Um, and I mean, uh, I, I, don't, I haven't confirmed this. I don't, I don't know for a fact that this is true, but I had heard last year, um, you know, when the Colonial Pipeline ransomware attack happened, as I understand it, Colonial Pipeline did pay the ransom or some, you know, they did pay a ransom, but in the end, restored their, restored their own data from backups. It's like, you know, so it's like they paid the ransom, but it didn't really get them anything. Mm -hmm. uh, and and uh, that may very well have been part of, uh, because when Colonial Pipeline uh, attack happened, at that time, uh, the cyber insurance policy uh, required you to pay the ransom as the first step. So that might have been part of the policy in order to maintain, to not violate their insurance. Um, and that may have been the reason. But there are, you know, there, there are speculation of, on my part. Yeah, obviously. Well, right. And, and like I said, I haven't, I, I have never confirmed that story in the first place. So, you know, I guess we'll, we'll caveat that whole thing with saying, you know, we're, we're, it's all hypothetical. Um, yes. but the uh, you know there there are a number of factors that that need to be considered um, that you know there's there's so there's this, there's the the sort of binary debate of should you pay the ransom yes or no and you know there's obviously people on the one side who are like well absolutely not never pay the ransom I mean you know look at the city of Baltimore um, you know they, they they didn't pay the ransom it ended up costing them significantly exponentially more <laughs> to recover than the ransom yes. would have but that assumes that paying the ransom would have actually gotten their stuff back and, and that they wouldn't have gotten hit a second time you know so there's a lot of things to consider there it's like it's easy to look 
back and say, wow, you guys should have just paid the ransom. Uh, you could have been back online a lot faster and cheaper, but maybe not. Yeah. But the other elements of that are when you pay the ransom, it's like, well, who are you paying? Because you might be violating uh, sanctions. You know, you might be you might be sending money to countries you're not allowed to send money to or to organizations you're not allowed to send money to. So you you by paying the ransom, you might actually be breaking the law. Right. And, and you know, there's oh, the, the, it's a it's a very uh, messy and hairy situation. And, you know, again, personally, as a cyber professional, I don't know where I sit on that debate because I think it's very situational. I think that um, in certain cases, um, paying the ransom is cheaper, uh, provided you understand associated risks. You know, it's always a risk. It's a it's a risk reward calculation, and I don't think that we should be making um, general. Gen generic policy decisions around that because no those situations are never simple well, uh, um, right. absolutely it, it, is, it is a tough decision no matter what um i would say that you know kind of where we landed at cyber reason and kind of what i agree with is in general and actually based on the research too like no matter what i think of it from a purely moral ethical standpoint Statistically, if, it's if not a good idea. Results say that paying the ransom is just going to get you hit again. Then why bother? Right. Um, but I would say that in general, I'm like, don't pay the ransom unless there's loss of life potentially. Like so, when hospitals are hit, it's like you you know you need to get back online now. <laughs> you know you don't you don't have time to like get, you know you don't have 18 months to get your systems back online. Um. So you know so if there's loss of life, then absolutely you know do what you need to do. But I would I would extend that somewhat when we're talking about things like your friend's law firm of if there's loss of company, you know, like you have to weigh that out and say, look, you know, if we don't pay the ransom, will we survive? Right. Um, you know, right. It's the livelihood of, of a whole bunch of people. And right. and that affects, you know, life. You know, it may not be as binary as life or death, but quality of life matters and 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 you have yeah. to weigh all of those factors in place in terms of risk reward right and yeah uh, but keeping in mind again the calculus of okay but when you pay the ransom there's a really good chance you're not actually going to get your data back there's a really good chance you're going to get hit again so you know and and i actually this is maybe a good point to step back and talk about safe ai and 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 what your approach is because what you know, what I've come to the conclusion of over the past few years is when it comes to ransomware, it, you know, once the, once the ransomware, once the actual encryption executable runs, there are no good options. Right. You know, paying the ransom sucks, not paying the ransom sucks. It's like the, 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 you have no good choices at that point. Um, you're pretty much screwed. Um, so, and, you know, the ransomware, in my opinion, the ransomware defense has to focus on before that. Like, I need to I need to prevent the encryption in the first place. I um, had a different take on okay. it. My take was we have to make that um, encryption uh, attack um, not matter. So it is, yes, you do have to basically 
take a preemptive action so that you become immune to that, right? The, the current prevalent answer is have really good backups, right? And and which which that was, but then the attacker said, okay, that's fine. We will first exfiltrate your data and then we'll do double, double extortion to give you a different incentive. So now right, it's right. not just There's doxing. Data, it's also <laughs> making sure we don't sell your data or leak your data or whatever. Um, and I actually heard and I have not followed up on this, but I heard about a. Th you know, there, I mean, there's triple extortion, quadruple extortion. You know, there's there's various variations on the theme, but one that I heard of last year, towards the end of last year, removed the the data encryption part, and right. just went to the data exfiltration, and that was the ransomware. They were like, okay, we're going to hold your ran your data ransom, and I thought, actually, that's sort of brilliant uh, from a threat actor from a business model. Because ransomware is very public, it's very noisy. You know, like you know, like once you know, once Colonial Pipeline is, is, is all their systems are encrypted, and you stop the flow of oil, people notice. When JBS Meatpacking is hit with ransomware and all meat processing stops, people notice. But if and 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 when people notice, it makes it very high profile for the threat actors. I mean, we we saw there there was you know fallout and backlash for. Are evil for dark side, you know, like Russia right. slapped them on the wrist, even if that was just for theater, you know, just for, you know, appearances. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, and then they, you know, disbanded uh, allegedly and, and, and moved on to other groups. And so there, there was there were consequences to publicly taking down these these companies. And, um, you know, like if you hit a hospital or whatever, I mean, then, you know, there are there are consequences to those things. But if you do this other version where I just take your data and I hold that ransom, it's very quiet. And now now a company like Colonial Pipeline or JBS Meatpacking, they could pay that ransom just to get you to not release their data, but nobody has to know. You know, like the 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 the, the threat actor isn't making headlines, the company isn't making headlines. So for all I know, those attacks are prevalent right now and we just don't hear about them because they're you know they they they're under the radar. And that's why I thought that's actually a that that was actually a pretty smart move, uh, to, the direction to take the concept of ransomware. Oh, yes. I mean, uh, that makes a lot of sense. And that's more in line with the type of attacks that used to happen, you know, like in, in history's past, right? Yeah. Where where you would get uh, access and, and try to use that for some type of uh, gain. Uh, without I knowing, I interrupted you because you were talking about you know the, the you know the, that that concept you know that uh... Uh, no you you you're going down the right line uh, you know and so I started thinking so my thought in, in 2017 was really weird and I was like okay uh, this is a cat and mouse game we keep on building bigger walls and and we're trying to basically protect the data. Uh, but we're going about it indirectly. And what I mean by that is, uh, you know, your uh, your text file, your uh, PDF document, your Word file, they don't, uh, or, or even like a record in the database, it doesn't participate in its own protection, right? It's, it's something has to do its uh, protection on its behalf. We're, and if we, if we uh, sort of, Boil down the the cat and mouse game. Essentially, it's not that the cybersecurity capabilities that we have built 
around protecting our networks and protecting our co computers and user-centric security and, uh, and, and training the people, et cetera. It's, it's not that that's not any good uh, when it's engaged. It's that it's bypassed. The entire cat and mouse game is to bypass that security capability that's in place, right? If you have backups, we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna first uh, delete the backups. If right, right, whatever whatever the situation is. And the fundamental issue is this bypass issue. So that was one observation. The second observation was that the fact that data is not participating in its own security. So there's this. You know, in various security models, um, there is one model called data-centric security. And data-centric security says, don't worry about anything else, only worry about data security, uh, data protection, like don't worry about protecting your network, et cetera, right? But there's this caveat. For data security to, uh, for data-centric security to exist, data has to be self-describing and self-defending. Now, how the heck do you make something that is a passive entity, like data sitting on your disk, self-defending? And that was the problem that I started to think about. And I came up with this thought that, okay, well, what if we replace the data with something that mimicked the data, right? So what if I replaced your file uh, with something that, as far as the operating system is concerned, looks and feels and, and acts like a file. You can read it, you can write to it, you can delete it, you can create it, you can update it, you know, well, file operations, or similarly in database, or database record operations, whatever it is. Your, your simple CRUD operations, as they're called, create, read, update, delete. Right. Right. And I, I, th uh, I thought, well, what if I made an, an, an AI that would accept CRUD requests so, so as input and would re, re either update the data that it memo, memorized and or it would release the data as output if the read request came in. What would be the consequences of that? What would be the consequence of your file defending itself? Well, from an uh, if if we constructed it correctly, you could essentially guarantee that the bypass of this system is not possible, because mathematically speaking, you could interleave the I/O operations essentially mm -hmm. and the data content all into a single atomic unit. So the very act of trying to, even if you had, uh, so if I could store the data inside some neural net cons construction of some sort, um, the very, and, and I had that, the, 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 the numbers of that, even on piece of paper, and I, I had all of the mathematics, the, the values of all the bits and pieces of the neural net, the very act of trying to extract the data mathematically runs that neural net, right? So um, what that told me that was that I could in, uh, it was no longer an envelope situation. So in every other case, the construction is 
that we wrap the data into something. Encryption, firewalls, right. like everything is a wrapper. But in this particular case, it wasn't. It was an interleaving. And I was like, oh, uh, sorry, go ahead. It sounds a little bit, uh, yeah. so it's like, it's like you have, you know, this sort of like AI proxy intermediary, you know, but, but from, but from, but, but from my perspective as the computer or as the user, I just see the file, which actually sounds a little bit, it's not, it's not the same thing, but it's a, it's, it's a little similar to me in the way that I use Microsoft OneDrive where like, you know, you can do the thing where you say, you know what? don't store this stuff on my computer. My computer still thinks all the files are on my computer, but they're not until I need Precisely, them. precisely, exactly. It's kind of like that. Um, the, the only, the, 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 the nuance is that there, it's not really, um, it's not a, a pass-through proxy. It is a replacement proxy. So, so it's like, um, rather than you sending a, an email, you're basically sending a clone of yourself to deliver the message, and you decide at the time what your clone decides at the time whether or not that that message should actually be allowed to go through. Another, and this is an unrelated thing, but I think it feels like a similar analogy. Is you know I have the the uh, the Apple credit card, mm -hmm. and the way the Apple credit card works is you know it does have a number but like at the point of transaction it's basically creating another number every time or whatever like it, it's it and and you know thereby preventing it from being stolen and, and fraudulently used because it's like a one-time use you know credit card number precisely so uh so now if we have that construction so i i thought okay well does this concept even work right so <laughs> built a prototype it seemed to work and the nice thing about it was I, these things, so I, I call them cybernetic engrams. This, I had to construct a specific construction of a neural net. And I called it a cybernetic engram because I'm a trekkie. <laughs> so there's an episode right. where Mr. Data loses, uh, you know, Data loses um, his memory and he's got these chips in his hands and he asks for uh, Jordi LaForge, Oh, I seem to be missing some engrams. Oh, there they are because he, they're they're in Jordy's hands. So because we were protecting data, and I'm a trekkie, and that was engrams, and engrams is how we store memory in our brains, and you know, cybernetic because it's a cool word. So I called this neural net a cybernetic engram, and it can basically memorize a file. And every time you try to do something to it, let's say you try to update it, it clones itself, does the update, compares the, date, the, the, the end point with itself and says, has my fundamental nature changed at the end of this update? And if the fundamental nature has been modified in such a way that I no longer, let's say I started out as a PDF file, I no longer, am a PDF file in my essence at the end of it, then that's a bad thing. So maybe I should mark this as a suspicious activity, keep keep myself around, keep my clone around, and then later on decide what, which one was good. So it's like, it is hyper, um, there, there, there's a concept in, in 
in, in file systems called checkpointing. So checkpointing, if you have Apple uh, computers, you might have something like Time Machine. And in other file systems, there's this ability to keep previous versions of, right. of, of, of your data. So this is a kind of like that, except it's um, hyperactive checkpointing in the sense that um, uh, these clone uh, these cloning systems in a in a given day can make anywhere between 20,000 200,000 branches of themselves in in real life and um, the neural net capability actually tracks all of that in such a way that let's say you do get you know we're coming back to the point where you said well we have to do something about the debt before the detonation let's say the detonation does take place let's say everything does get corrupted these files literally revert themselves back to a sane state really fast, like supremely fast. And the nice thing about this construction is that it takes care of one scenario that current solutions don't, which is that let's say a detonation, you know, let's say an attack starts and it starts corrupting your data. During that corruption, good transactions are also happening right and they're interleaved between all of this corruption and 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 and, and um the, the 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 good transactions and the bad transactions are inter interleaved so it's not like in reality we can at the speed of compute that we have we cannot really go back to yesterday i mean we don't have a choice today right, right. with other solutions we're like okay we're but gonna have to lot. lose you lose a lot by going back you lose a lot by but, but in this particular situation, all of the, the neural nets basically help sift that out. And, and you, you, you get all, pretty much all of the good data, especially for normal type of files, et cetera, really, really easily. Like in a single command, it's, it's kind of visceral to see your data kind of come back. Um, so, I mean, it sounds, it sounds awesome. I have two questions. Um, one, what's, uh, what's the performance impact, you know, cause I, anything, anything where I'm like, okay, normally I would just access the file. Now I'm accessing something else that's accessing the file or whatever. That's one question. And then two is what if I actually want to encrypt my data? How does, how does safe AI interpret that? If I say, okay, well, I'm encrypting my data. Okay. So let's, uh, tackle the first, uh, the second question first. The second question is very easy to answer. When you encrypt your data, it's fine um, because you will never in, well, not never, but in most cases, you will not encrypt your data and rename it docx, right? Let's say you, you, you're, you're encrypting your file um, and your, um, uh, your, you know, your Word document, you're, and you call it uh, my secret document dot docx, but you want to encrypt it, you will not encrypt it into my secret file dot docx dot, let's say the dot enc, let's say you do encrypt it like that. You're not going to then turn around and rename it to the previous one. But even if you did, in in let's say you did want to do that, that's okay because you can tell the neural net that that's okay from, from some administrative tools. Okay. And uh, you can actually attach 
your um, your your uh, verification key to the system. But I mean, it, that's a very esoteric sort of edge case. We do have a solution around that, but uh, in most normal situations, you're not doing anything that esoteric. Right. Um, if you are in, if you are saving encrypted files that should only be decrypted in memory, there's a way to to sign them and and tell the the system that you know just don't worry about this, except when that. Uh, signature part gets corrupted or something like that. You can you can make it you can make it uh, tuned to that. And the neural net and the so the way this is currently uh, bundled is kind of like OneDrive, right? It's it's a network attached storage that you get. So so you just save your files to this new network attached storage, whether it's sitting on your uh, in in your house in your office, on-prem, or in the cloud, uh, and it's completely self-hosted. Like there's no, we, we're not offering a cloud service. It's like you download it, it's your data, you want to keep it private, you know, that's part of it. Um, so that's one. The second is, the second question, which is, okay, what is the performance impact? Well, interestingly, it's sidecard onto the network. As, it's, as, as an appliance. So yes, you do need to give it a compute, but give, let me give you a, a very concrete example. Uh, so there is a network that we've just deployed to. It's got 500 users. It's about 50 terabytes of data, okay? In order to uh, maintain about a year's worth of sort of ability to revert and, 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 and reconstruct, etc., they have uh, deployed a 200 terabyte environment for their 50 terabytes of data. This uh, performs about, uh, uh, it, it, it performs a granularity uh, at, at a granularity of about um, five seconds. So about 20,000 sort of branches a day. And that system is running on a virtual machine with um, 64 gigs of RAM and, no, sorry, forgive me, 32 gigs of RAM and um, 16 cores, or 16, yeah, 16 cores associated to it. And that's, um, and that system can take the impact of all 500 users corrupting the data simultaneously. And it would okay. still be at around 60% uh, compute capacity at that rate, right? So that is a real, that's a real environment. Okay. Well, so here's what's, what I think is, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot that I find interesting about, about your approach and, and the solution, but what I think, where I think it um, has significant value compared to what else I see and what I've known is that, you know, if you look at Cyber Reason, you look at CrowdStrike, you look at Sentinel One, you look at like you know companies that are in the EDR space and 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 or you know companies that are trying to carve out XDR space, that the uh, you know the focus is on well we're gonna we're gonna detect and respond we're gonna de we're gonna detect it better and respond faster and and that works to an extent with the current iteration of 
ransomware because there generally is a there's a there's an initial compromise an initial infiltration there's recon there's lateral movement there there's there you have ample opportunity to detect malicious activity before it gets to the detonation of the encryption algorithm but if you don't you're still kind of screwed like you know once once it gets there you you don't have any recourse really um and you know what what you described does address that and it also addresses what if it's a ransomware that doesn't do that like you know basically a lot of the current ransomware strategy relies on threat actors spending some time in the network like it relies on there being some period of time to give yes. me an opportunity to detect this activity but what if you know what if we went back to old school ransomware like it hits your system and you're and you're encrypted you know instantly you know right, well now right. detect and respond doesn't really help you <laughs> Well, yes, and and detect and respond is is playing a it's 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 playing um, a by player game. It's it's it involves two players, so the the attacker and the defender. And in in our case, what we're saying is we don't care to look for bad behavior in order to train our neural net. Right, I don't need to know. Like if I if I'm teaching my kid about um, creepy people, <laughs> right? I've got I've got four four daughters. I don't need to in introduce her to a large sample of creepy people in order for her to understand what creepy people are like. I just need to tell her what good feels like, so that she understands that when something is different from that, that it's that's bad by 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 contrast, right? So, uh, you know, for her to have her body autonomy, emotional autonomy, whatever, you know, having 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 raising children nowadays is, is a challenge on its own. But um, so so. The thing is, in our in Savia's case, when we are building these neural nets, we know what good data looks like because we have access to it. Right? So we can train, we, the, the neural net is, is self-training against that. So. So that's one advantage. The second thing is it's complete because of the way it's wrapped into the file system. It's it doesn't have it doesn't require any agents. Let's say if I'm sidecarring it into a Windows network, I'm not installing any agents on any Windows system. The very network drive has this has all of this thing kind of built into it. Right. Um, and the third thing, and this addresses our data leakage and data exfiltration question is that files when they can do uh, self analysis because they are now self describing as well they can do a lot more about informing all of these other tools like dlp protection and and um, firewalls and and other capabilities that you have in your network about the threat source. So if the file, if, a, if, if you're now all of a sudden as reading 2000 sensitive files and generating a zip file, those 2000 sensitive files understand that they're being read by Tony, but whereas Tony never read them before at that speed, right? right. That's a ground source of truth about the event. Right. So if we are looking, you know, uh, 
as cybersecurity uh, industry, we like our acronyms. The current acronym of choice is SOAR, right? So every one can think that every file has its own SOAR built into it, and it's it's responding directly. Right. And then you can have a much more sophisticated system that can actually collect that ground source of truth and make much more informed inferences about what's happening. Uh, and, and then talk about, it just feeds into that reaction and, 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 and response and, you know, detection and response and makes it, gives it another dimension in terms of how it, the system can overall work. Does that make sense? Yes. Um, I was also going to say, you know, our, our conversation has revolved around ransomware and defending against ransomware. Um, but you started off with the premise of, you know, that a lot of organizations might look at things and say, well, I don't need to, you know, I, 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 I just want to protect the data. Like, I don't need to protect the, the network. Right. And, and, and I've actually had that philosophy going back kind of to the beginning of the the explosion of mobile devices. And, and you know, when I was, I, I used to have conversations, you know, a decade ago with com with people about mobile device security. And I said, well, ultimately, I don't really care if I lose this phone. And I don't right. actually even care if you have access to the apps on this phone. What I care is, do you have access to the data in this phone? And so ultimately, like, I was like, all right, that's where the security should focus. The security should focus on make sure you can't get my data. I don't care if you take the computer. I don't care if you take the phone. I don't care about any of that stuff. Just make sure you can't get the data. You can't get and, the data. And Always. I've actually, in a, in, in a, in a former life, I, I did marketing, you know, with, with a DLP company and I've done some different uh, data loss protection, you know, freelance work over the years. And, you know, so I would say, even though our conversation is folks around ransomware, I see a you know huge application from a data protection you know proposition as well for what you're it, describing. It started out as a ransomware thing, and but uh, we are um, we have a huge impact on data exfiltration protection and data leakage protection, and uh, you know there are very strong security models. Um, one uh, that theoretically provide a really good basis for in for um, uh, creating those capabilities, but uh, the missing piece was the data had to participate, and this answers that one fundamental. It gives that one fundamental capability that data has to participate, and now we can build all these other uh, more um, direct tools around data leakage protection. Like if I if my file knows that it's sensitive. Uh, and I try to drag it to a USB drive or I try to email it because it can generate that event directly into the rest of the system. Now you, I have, um, you know, a, basically a patient that can tell you it hurts on my arm when you press on it. So, ow, <laughs> it, you know, right. it's not a, it's not a, 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 a catatonic patient where the doctor's constantly probing and using other instruments to figure out what's wrong, where where does the where it's is there muscle atrophy or whatever. The, it's always been one of the you know traditionally it was one of the hugest challenges of DLP was you know like and when, and and I was I was in the early days of early days of DLP where you know we were working with saying okay well all we need you to do is 
go through and and basically catalog all your data and 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 I and and flag it is this is this sensitive and I'm like okay well that model doesn't hold up because it, doesn't it requires way too much user interaction to you know basically whoever creates the data has to be able to determine how sensitive it is and appropriately flag it which also getting it right which, which well and, and which also exposes you to huge insider threat because now if i want to export sensitive data i can just flag it wrong on purpose right and uh, you know there's a um there's a dlp solution uh that is currently deployed in a 22000 uh employee environment manufacturing sector that basically locked up one entire business unit which is their most lucrative business unit because it was trying to deal with data that it doesn't know how to deal with so this dlp solution specifically looks at phi pii etc um uh, information it's a commercially available one uh but it was now looking at cad drawings and and really complex envelopes and it literally locked up their entire compute um every single system and it was a massive disaster because it's trying to do something that is not really it was like dlp solutions are too uh, naive at the moment um external dlp solutions we need something that is viscerally uh, fundamentally you know data centric in order for that to become effective um there's there, we can we can chat offline at some point in time about uh, data leakage protection and some of the things that we're doing around that I would love to pick your brain on, on what you've seen and show you what we are thinking about using uh, how, and, and applying it to to the exfiltration problem. Yeah, I mean, you know, like I said, it it it, it does come down to that. You know, it, the, a lot of the DLP solutions. You know, just the whole approach. It's like, like I, yes, I agree with the 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 goal. You know, to, to go back to you, I I agree that fundamentally we want to protect the data more so than the systems or the network or anything else. Um, but it's the how that that, that is challenging, and um, you know, I I, I think. What I see now, and not to drag it back into that, but is that a lot of it does have to hinge on the behavior component. Like I can't, yes. I can't rely on, you know, is this data flagged properly? Like did someone, did someone, you know, this data has, this file has social security numbers in it. Did someone remember to mark it as, you know, confidential? I can't rely on that, but I can rely on, okay, well, you know, Ahmed usually logs in from, you know, Nashville between, you know, Monday through Friday. You know, I can I can look at behavior and say, okay, well, why why is Ahmed logging in from uh, Tel Aviv at 3 a.m. on Saturday? Or I can say, okay, yes, you technically have access to this file, but you've never accessed it before, and why are you now suddenly accessing 5,000 of them and downloading them? You know, like, well, like yeah, and precisely this is a this is a big problem. For example, in defense sector, for let's say you do have read access to uh, covered unclassified information, CUI, to, to, but this was a problem that, that happened for the Canadian Department of National Defense. 
And the idea was, okay, there's 10 unclassified files, but if you were to read them, all 10 of them, now in your brain, you would have classified information that's above your pay grade. So now how do we solve the problem that, okay, you've read nine of them, so we won't let you open the 10th one, right? And there is a method to solving that. And as, as a matter of fact, that method of solving that problem was something that we built into um, Safe AI Resiliate. The, so, so, the, so the product, the the, the 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 instantiation of this Safe AI capability is called Resiliate, and so things like that are directly possible in this construction, um, where you can actually track, you know, the compound impact of someone accessing various permutations of data, and that's in. That capability in general is interesting for people to build solutions around and, and for people to, to take advantage of, I think. Um, all right, well, I wanted to, I guess, sort of start to wind things down, but, um, you know, I guess my, my you know, well, I, I have two things. Number one would be, um, I, I, I often end with, you know, was there was there a question I didn't ask? Was there something that we you wanted to get to that 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 we didn't we didn't hit on? So feel free to to introduce that. And then the other is just kind of like, well, what's on the horizon for you know for 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 you for Safe AI? You know what what's you know what what can we look forward to next? And well, no, let's just start there. Okay, so uh, what's on the horizon? Uh, well, we will. Um, we uh, released uh, this product at right around the beginning of this year, after four years of you know, kind of trying to get it done out, uh, and uh, it's uh, taken off rather nicely. Um, so we're uh, uh, bringing it to the people who want to, uh, who who need to protect their data, and there's a lot of them. We've had uh, really interesting um, successes in higher education and in, in legal sector, and I think there are other sectors that are starting to pay, pay attention. So there's that. Um, the question that I thought maybe we needed to address was, okay, who's, what is the target audience for this capability? Is it the Fortune 500? Is it, you know, what's the size? Who can use this? Interestingly, this technology was designed for that friend of mine in mind, right? This small company. And, and for them to be able to use it without requiring a lot of technical debt or, or, or requiring a lot of technical expertise. So the basic idea is if you have absolutely nothing in place, right? At least get this because it is, um, we've priced it to be, uh, Tied to the amount of data, which means you can calculate your cost very easily. Uh, but uh, but the idea is, uh, can a regular person with some technical knowledge use this in an environment where they have they're doing ten thousand other things with their hair on fire, right? And the answer is yes. It literally takes. 15 to 20 minutes to deploy on a network. It takes more time to kind of uh, 
uh, figure out, okay, what data do we want to put on it? And which which systems do we need to connect it to? But it, it works. I mean, we've protected Windows XP and Windows 95 data with this. It's so backwards compatible because it's all completely server side and it works on your favorite cloud. It works on you, like we've got it deployed in, in uh, on-prem, et cetera. So it is designed to be uh, nicely sidecar. You don't have to rip and replace uh, your, your stuff and it's not particularly difficult to manage. Uh, I am, so just coming back to the horizon thing, um, I'm a systems guy. I like building backend stuff. So uh, while I have really good uh, front end folks on my team, uh, we haven't built a, a decent front end on it, but that's what's coming out of the pipeline over the next two months. A, 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 a nice u user experience in terms of Which a web interface. I think is, uh, you know, fairly standard, I think for, you know, for, 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 new products for startup things it's like, well, you know, you, you, you need to build the actual functionality, the actual engine, validate that that works and, you know, work out the kinks in that. Once you have that, okay, well now let's make it pretty. Right. And that's where we're at. We're, we're making it pretty and we're making it much more accessible for, for non-technical people to interact with it. And uh, yeah, so yeah, that, that, that's it. And hopefully, uh, we've been, you know, we, we run, we bootstrapped this company with some angel funding and, and, uh, and, but uh, hopefully by the beginning of next year, we'll, we'll go for our first institutional round. We'll see how that works out, but, okay. but customers, customers are better than, 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 than investors. Yeah. <laughs> That's, I'm very New England uh, in my approach. We tend, tend to be very, very conservative that way. All right. Well, I definitely look forward to further conversations. And like you said, we can take some some stuff offline and 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 chat further. But I want to thank you for for joining me. And you know, like I said, I mean, ransomware is you know arguably the you know biggest threat facing you know organizations of all sizes, shapes, industries, countries right now. So you know anything we can do to uh, improve the ability to defend against that, I think is a, is a huge, huge benefit. I completely agree. I think we're all working towards the same goal. And this has been, thank you very much for uh, inviting me to your podcast. I, as I said before, I am a fan and uh, I do listen and it's um, wonderful to uh, talk to you face, well, face to face. <laughs> all right, well, thank you very much. Take care. I appreciate you investing your time to listen to the podcast, but I also invite you to engage on social media. Uh, please go like our Facebook page and follow at Techspective on Twitter and Instagram. You can feel free to let me know what you like, let me know what you don't like, let me know if you love it, let me know if it sucks, and uh, let me know what products you'd like to see reviewed or what uh, questions that you'd like to see answered in future posts.